Welcome to the 462nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Maxime Pritula to discuss COVID in Ukraine. A reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can always keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of March 10th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, the nation of Moldova reports 11,304 deaths to COVID-19. Poland reports 113,002 deaths to the disease. Ukraine reports 112,459 deaths to COVID-19 but the numbers have not been updated since the start of the war in these past two weeks. Hey, I'd like to introduce my guest for today. It's a real honor to speak with Maxime Pritula. He's a periodontist and oral surgeon in Ukraine, where he's also working towards a PhD in public health administration. And I'm just absolutely honored that he would take the time to speak with me today on COVID calls. Max, it's great to meet you. Yes, a pleasure to meet you too. Scott. I'd like to start the way I usually do and find out where you're calling from today, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about what's going on there. Uh, thank you. Thank you for making this time and having me on the show. Uh, I'm currently located in Lviv, Ukraine. However, my practice in, is based in Kiev. Unfortunately, due to certain circumstances in our country, I had to evacuate a few days ago. So. Um, but I am, however, comfortable to say where I'm located currently. What was that evacuation like for you? Were you able to do it on a in auto, or were you able to do it on a train? How'd you do it? Uh, well, we evacuated with my colleagues, um, four people. It was a bit difficult because we were in Kiev on two separate, uh, you know, two separate ends of the city. So my colleagues evacuated via car, uh, and I had to evacuate via train uh, because the bridges in between the river were closed down due to potential, you know, what do you call it? Uh, due to potential risks of them being blown up by Russian troops. So uh, it was a bit difficult. I'm not going to lie. Uh, the trains are completely full, and right after I left, the train station was blown up. So I got quite lucky. I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad you were able to make that trip. And I should say at the very beginning, before we start our conversation, um, uh, I'm a disaster researcher. And on behalf of disaster researchers like myself around the world, we're standing with you in solidarity. I wish there was something I could do more than words, but uh, we're astounded by your courage. And I just want to tell you we're with you. 
thank you. Support really matters in any difficult time like this. It is truly hard to leave your home and practice and everything. Yeah. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about your practice. How long have you been a periodontist and oral surgeon? Well, I've been practicing for four years now. I specialize in uh, reconstructions of the um, alveolar region. Uh, so basically implantation, periodontal treatment, uh, augmentations, soft tissues and hard tissues, and generally all dental stuff. So apical microsurgery, periodontal microsurgery, and total rehabilitations. However, due to recent, uh, well, I, I was lucky enough to uh, actually witness the time before COVID uh, in my practice. So for me, it basically goes like this, practice before COVID, practice during COVID, practice during the war. So it uh, truly has been an interesting experience because COVID did impact even my sphere of, um, of medicine. I'm sure it did. The way that people who do dentistry and oral surgery have had to adapt their practices has been really impressive around the around the world. What what did you have to do to adapt the way you worked when COVID started? Uh, well, when COVID started, I was a volunteer in the Donbass war region because I volunteer as a surgeon in these sort of hot spots. We treat soldiers. Uh, locals and volunteers as well. And we've been doing that since like 2015, I believe. Yeah, my project has been working since 2015. So we basically specialize in uh, all of the dental stuff. Like next to us, paramedics are based and other uh, specialties medical-wise. So uh, it was, was quite interesting. Uh, we had to adapt in many ways. As a surgeon, for me, it wasn't really that hard because uh, most of the adaptations in dentistry had to do with uh, personal protection, like meaning increased uh, mask usage, increased glove usage, uh, meaning uh, sterile surgical glove usage, because in dentistry we use uh, non-sterile and sterile gloves, as you might know. Uh, all of the surgical surface uh, area coverage and stuff like that. So the first few months, I would say, when the pandemic hit, all the practices had to shut down. And only take patients with uh, immediate need. Uh, did I just stutter? No. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, it was very similar to what is happening now, actually, because most of the practices in Kiev, for example, and even I had to uh, take in a few patients, a few soldiers uh, since the war started because, like, we couldn't refuse them. If you're going to fight and you have a, a you have pain, you're not going to be able to do it pretty well. So, again, for the first few months since the pandemic hit, uh, our practice was closed in Kiev. And gradually started to open up. But ever since that, as I know, dentists and dental hygienists, uh, as I recall by the statistic, are the number one candidates of catching COVID. Yeah. So it was a bit difficult. Uh, there were times where our practice 
I had a situation where all the doctors, all the staff caught COVID and we had to stop really? working for two or three weeks. Yeah. Mm, I personally had it about two or three times. I'm not even sure anymore. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So I had the first stamp. Uh, then about half a year later, I had the second one. Yeah. And I think about two months ago, I had a third one. But not, not quite sure anymore. One of the things that's been hard to get good information about is vaccination in in Ukraine. Has the vaccine for COVID been widely available and have people been taking it? Yeah, well, the vaccine is widely available. In fact, it's free in most cases. Uh, the tests are not free, however. The uh, PCR, I mean, it's called, because now can, uh, the mm-hmm. interpretation is called a bit different. Uh, the tests are not free. They cost money, uh, but the vaccination for the most part is free. Uh, at first, people were skeptical, I'm not going to lie. But as with all things, you will always have a divide into three categories of people. People who want the vaccine, people who don't want it, the anti-vaxxers, and people who just live their lives on as if nothing ever bothers them or nothing exists. So in Ukraine, it's extremely similar. Uh, at first, many people were skeptical, many people. And there is a good reason behind it, because in Ukraine is a post-Soviet system of medicine. We have been trying to recuperate from that for the past 30 years. However, sometimes it's not as easy as it seems. But then people started to, you know, get around to it, let's say that. Uh, a good reason for that was... The fact that without a vaccine, without the COVID certificate, you couldn't really do anything. You couldn't board the train. You couldn't go to another city. And at one point, you couldn't even go to the shop. Hmm. Uh, and that wasn't very nice for most people. So they decided, you know what? Okay, fine. I have my principles. I have my doubts. But if this is going to impact my way of life, I'm going to go get vaccinated. However, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this, but most likely it's a fact. Uh, the COVID pandemic has spiked a new wave of corruption in the medical sphere. Yes. Uh, again, uh, when you have a field which you know forbids you from having to do anything, such as go to the shop, buy something without a piece of paper uh, or without an electronic certificate, uh, you will have people who, who will wish to speculate on that. We uh, can you hear me? Because I seem to have uh, lost just a, connection for a brief moment. No, it's okay. Just a couple of slight uh, slowdowns. No problem. Uh, in Ukraine, we had a massive reform to the public health system in the past two or three years, which basically uh, started to be similar to the European uh, public health system, where you have a what is called a family doctor. And first you go to him, and then he will uh, divert you to the more specialized medical doctors, such as you know, ENT, dentists, cardiovascular specialist and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, that was a very successful reform and most people did have 
a positive feedback to that. Uh, but that was before COVID. When COVID hit, uh, there were two different ways where, where, where in which you could acquire a vaccine. Uh, the first one was you could go to your uh, family doctor, which is mm-hmm. a, a basically a specialist in a public health clinic, which is uh, registered in your area of living, which you are, how do you say, fixed to. So basically, you can't go anywhere else. You have to go to him. Mm-hmm. And you can you can get a vaccine from him. Like he will divert you to the medical laboratory, which is based in his uh, public health clinic. Uh, or you could simply just stand in line in any of the free medical laboratories and they would just vaccinate you as well. Uh, or your place of work, such as big companies, big corporations, uh, did vaccinate their employees for free, so like three ways. Uh, and again, that did spike a huge wave of corruption because some people were extremely skeptical about it, like uh, to the point where uh, if you force something onto a person, they will most likely uh, think, why is this being forced on me? You know? uh, is there a second thought behind it? Uh, perhaps they are trying to speculate with my health or stuff like that. And they were saying, mm-hmm. mm, you know what? I need this document. I need but I don't want to put my health at risk due to the fact that there at that po- at that moment there wasn't enough uh, science-based evidence and research-based evidence to prove that the vaccine is actually uh, long-term beneficial to people. Because again, uh, that was about two or three months since the pandemic hit. Yeah. And they just went to the family doctor. They told them, you know what, I need this paper. Give it to me. I will pay you some money. And the doctors, they decided, you know, this is a good idea to make some extra income because their salary, honestly, is very terrible. And that spiked a a tremendous, a tremendous failure in the in the data collection sphere because you cannot analyze something if it is not a like a data acquired by actual means if it is a false data so the vaccination percentage in ukraine is probably much lower than the data actually shows Let me just remind folks real quickly that you're listening to COVID calls and I've had the opportunity today to talk to Dr. Max Pertula, who's right now living in Lviv. Uh, He's ordinarily based in Kyiv and we've been talking about the Ukrainian health system. Let me just follow up with this question about um, vaccine hesitation in Ukraine. How much do you think that was influenced, Max, by the beginning of the first stage of the war in 2014? In other words, people trusting or mistrusting authority have anything to do with the war or it's a deeper, older sort of problem? Uh, 2014 crisis has, uh, not just in my personal opinion, but 
uh, in the uh, if you if you read some papers on actual statistics, actual questionnaires and stuff like that about uh, the correlation between the 2014 uh, invasion and the COVID pandemic, you will find that there is absolutely zero correlation between them. Uh, it did not influence the, the hesitation about vaccination in 2020 at all. Or 20, yeah, 2020. What about health Im impacts on the overall health system in Ukraine since 2014? Has it been under a lot of stress or are these stresses been much more recent leading up to the current to the current conflict mm, i would say i would say that uh, since 2014 we have had a, but again this depends on the region because if you uh, for example if you take into account the donbass region uh, you'll find that there there is absolutely uh, there is very little efficient health providing service there since the war began because most doctors decided to either move into more uh, safer regions or they decided to just abandon their practice altogether there. Uh, so again, since 2014, uh, if, you, if you look at Ukraine as general, we have seen a great improve in the public health sphere due to several reforms and due to uh, more qualified doctors being put out into the field of the university. Uh, however, if you look at Crimea, we cannot gather the data there absolutely because uh, jurisdiction is part of Ukraine, but uh, as it seems now, the data gathered from there goes to the Russian School of Medicine. And in Donbass, it is divided into, again, two regions, the so-called illegitimate autonomous republics, which you don't, I'm not really sure what, even, what is even happening there. And the uh, Donbass region, which is uh, Ukrainian-based. So in the Ukrainian side of the Donbass region, the, the health system is pretty good because you had we had a lot of uh, uh, financial aid come into that region from all sides of Ukraine and from foreign partners as well. However... Uh, it must be noted that because the major cities of Donetsk and Lugansk have been captured, uh, the generally decentralized uh, system of that region has been broken. And you, they didn't even have a proper maxillofacial uh, wing, even, mm. or wing of the hospital in those regions up until like 2019, which is five years into the conflict. At one point, it just so happened that while I was staying in the Donbass region, I was the only oral surgeon there. And wow. for like the area of, I'm not even sure how much. People would come from all over the region just because they heard that there was a good surgeon there. Uh, it was nice to hear that, but at the same time, it wasn't really nice to realize that you're the only guy in the range of perhaps 500 kilometers who can actually do something and help people. So, yeah. Well, those must have been very busy days for you, Max. Oh yeah, there were days where there were days where we would have like 16 patients per one chair. Yeah, very hectic. You would work from nine to like 3 p.m. three three at night, and then you would wake up at eight and go to work again, and seven days a week. 
Yeah, you couldn't even do anything. Because no, no other doctors would switch you because everybody left. You mentioned uh, when we started talking about your life as a doctor before COVID and then COVID, and then as we're getting, uh, as the war started, I want to ask you about that period just before the war in November and December, the Omicron Good wave. Good times, you mean that? Yeah, maybe. Is that how you call them? I don't know. <laughs> it, um, it seems like November, December were very hard, though. Uh, the infection rates were incredibly high. In the Western media, we had stories about the um, the problem of you know dealing with the dead. Uh, it looked like the early days of the pandemic in New York City when it was just such a terrible moment. Was this how was it in Kiev in those months in November and December, just before the war? Uh, okay. Uh, first of all, allow me to elaborate why they were difficult months, uh, November and December. Uh, so usually, uh, in the winter months, people decide to go abroad into warmer countries for about a week or two, just you know, relax, get some sun before New Year's or perhaps after New Year's. Um, the prices for uh, tourism are usually cheaper because it is off-season and most people uh, decide to uh, exploit that. Uh, and when you have a lot of people moving out and then moving back in and uh, getting into contact with you know people from around the world who are potential carriers of covid or infections in general uh, you will start to see a, a substantial increase in the rate of infection in your country once those people get back uh, that is the first reason why the second reason why is because november and december are generally cold months and as we know when temperature decreases uh, the immune system tends to react uh, sometimes it cannot cope with the uh, decrease of temperature decrease by vi decreased vitamin intake and at the same time a potential rate of increased uh, infection carriers which are all around so that is the the uh, the estimated reason why we had an increase in COVID uh, cases. Uh, whether it was difficult or not, uh, it is very hard to say. Uh, again, why? Because uh, sometimes you have a, a certain delusion in the amount of actual cases. Because uh, sometimes, uh, the, and I, I, can, I can prove this, in fact. Because sometimes hospitals, what they will do is uh, when you have a patient who's almost dying, like perhaps of some cardiovascular uh, pathology, which has um, you know uh, brought him to a state and he's going to die perhaps like in a week or do Uh, what they will do is they will COVID. Why? Because, again, uh, the financial aid per hospital where there are more COVID patients is higher. Uh, so, again, currently saying, plus there is that fact that you know, if you're infected with COVID, it, it doesn't mean that it's dangerous, you know, deathly dangerous for you because you might have different stages of COVID or your organism might react to it in a certain way. 
this might sound like some anti-vaxxer stuff, but again, it's just, I'm, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've had my vaccine done. So don't worry about that. Yeah, so yeah, so again, the numbers, you can't really trust them in Ukraine. Mm. In other countries, perhaps you can, but again, our collection system is a bit different. Uh, so uh, the Omicron, Omic, Omni, Omicron, or Omicron, mm-hmm. that's yeah, Omicron stamp. Mm, I've had it. And I've been tested positive for it. Uh, many people around me had it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's actually interesting to say that most people had it at the same time. All of the people mm-hmm. I've known who've been tested positive, we've had it uh, in the span of one or two weeks uh, at the end of November, beginning of December. Uh, I didn't even have to take any tablets or anything like that because that was my third COVID experience and it was quite easy to get through. But um, there have been situations where people actually died of it. Uh, But again, when you look at uh, COVID as an independent uh, infection, as an independent uh, uh, threat to your body, uh, it is completely different from when you have a co- when you have a COVID case in a patient who is perhaps struggling from pneumonia or yeah. other sorts of uh, deathly deathly diseases, which are in a balance, you could say, from life or death. Uh, so, yeah, the infection rate was high. However, the uh, death cases uh, were lower than in, during the first stand because the first stand uh, lungs. That seems to have been the, the case in, in lots of places around the world. And it, right now we have the worst of it here in South Korea. The death rate is higher than it's been, but it's not as high as you might expect with so many with so many cases. So. So that brings us up to the outbreak of the war. And um, I guess, you know, you talk, we talked at the, at the beginning of our discussion about your, your leaving Kiev and coming to Lviv. But in, those, in that time when, when you were still in Kiev before you left, were you still seeing patients then? I mean, what was, yeah. what was life yeah, like? Uh, it was difficult, I'm not going to lie. Uh, it's actually a bit funny because uh, on the 23rd, on the night before uh, we were attacked, I had to go to another city for private courses uh, to improve my qualification. And as it so happened, it was supposed to start on the 24th, we were attacked, the courses obviously were postponed, and I had to go back to Kiev. Uh, so I moved all of my patients uh, on further dates. However, once I got back, uh, I, I uh, found out that all of the clinics were closed that I was working in because I work in uh, four clinics as a surgeon. Uh, and once patients started calling me about pain and about you know the fact that they can't go anywhere else. Uh, I had to make some arrangements. Let's just say that uh, get keys from my employer uh, and open it up and take them. Uh, and the difficulty in that was that all the public transport was closed. 
So I had to walk for about two and a half hours to the clinic to uh, treat patients and walk back home. And that was about for two or three days before I had to leave, unfortunately. So even though the war started, we uh, still decided to work, uh, me and my several colleagues, because again, you cannot you cannot leave a person with pain. It is it is absolutely against all the decrees of medicine, even during war. Uh, however, I can say this: uh, since the war started, most of the practices have been closed. Uh, only several <clears throat> in certain um, regions of the city and cities in general have been open, and they have been providing absolute free care to all patients, uh, regardless whether they are in the military or whether they are civilian. So the war has, uh, these past two weeks of war, have uh, had a, uh, let's, let's say, positive feedback on the cooperation between uh, doctors. So, for example, if a doctor is working uh, two kilometers away, and the patient can't get to him, he will just uh, write in some Facebook group or something like that, where the doctors are situated, and he will say, um, "I have a patient. He has uh, hot hot tooth pain. Uh, we have to treat him. However, he is unable to come to me. Uh, is anybody working here in this specific place?" And he will get a response. Yes, we are taking in patients. Uh, here's my number. Call. Let him call me. I will take him. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. Uh, in the maxillofacial ward, uh, there have actually been a decrease of patients for some reason. And uh, I've talked to my colleagues there, and we cannot elaborate as to why. Um, perhaps due to the fact that you know, most people just left, or because the traffic is lower, so you have less chances of. Uh, road uh, road injuries, for example, fractures, stuff like that. You have less complications because most people are being treated for free in private clinics. However, as I am told, uh, most wards in you know big hospitals, most wards in big hospitals, have closed off uh, and have postponed all planned operations on patients, uh, and have instead uh, made all of their wings, all the wards, uh, treat patients with trauma and patients who have been injured, for example, uh, firearm injuries, uh, absolutely for free. I guess that's a classic example of a triage approach. You have to deal with the wounds of war first, but I'm fascinated to hear you describe the reality that other needs of care don't go away and COVID cases certainly probably don't either. Uh, COVID cases have a COVID wing for them. Mm. Uh, and that has been the case ever since uh, the start of the pandemic. Uh, I can say this, the COVID wings that have been uh, constructed in the hospitals, they are very high class. I've been to some of them. Uh, there were times when my clinic was called into uh, to treat patients in the COVID wing to treat their dental problems, uh, and it, it is a bit fascinating actually the way they dress you up. Because uh, when we perform surgery, we dress up in a very certain way, in a very sterile way, 
And it was very fascinating when we first came into the wing because I brought my own instruments, my own stereo instruments. We had to, uh, I believe it was, extract several teeth uh, in a COVID patient. Uh, and we w- when we walked in, they dressed us up. Uh, they told us the specific instructions, what you can do, what you can't do. Uh, they escorted us to the patient. And they gave us several tables because, again, this isn't a, a dental wing. This is a COVID wing. So they basically have right. a bed. Right. And they don't have any instruments. So it is a very uh, it is a very similar to field dentistry, you know, military field dentistry, where you basically wow. have what you have. And you just go in because you can't take that patient out and move him into the, you know, the dental chair. It is a very high risk of him contaminating other people. Right. Um, so you go into that, you perform anesthesia on him, uh, you remove all that you need to remove, you perform what you need to perform, you suture him up, and then you just come back in about two weeks and remove the sutures. Very fascinating, actually. Uh, once in a lifetime experience, I can tell you that. The, uh, the feeling that you get from when, when you walk into like this zone where they have these you know, infection marks, danger and everything like that. And you realize yeah. that, yeah, I'm a dentist. I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> but at the same time, you realize uh, yeah. But at the same time, yeah. you realize that, you know what? You have to do this yeah, because, because you have to help people. Otherwise, he will get, have a complication in the maxillofacial in the maxillofacial area, which will lead to uh, perhaps more more devastation in his body, which uh, because again, uh, several pathologies uh, can worsen when you have uh, a virus, for example, or an immunodeficient uh, pathology such as COVID, for example. Uh, in our field, we have we have actually had uh, several uh, let's call them new uh, pathologies added, such as periodontal diseases, which are stimulated by COVID. Uh, because again, COVID, uh, from our point of view, is an, an, a source of immunodeficiency because it lowers the resistance of the body. And in the maxillofacial field, you've actually had <clears throat> uh, some diseases pop up which are extremely devastating, extremely dangerous. Uh, for example, necrosis uh, from taking certain uh, medications, which is very similar actually to people taking uh, medication for cancer treatment, uh, the effects of it. And uh, osteomyelitis, which is basically the... Uh, how can the erosion all because of COVID. I've seen cases like that. Mm-hmm. My colleagues have had cases like that, and it is mm-hmm. absolutely devastating. You will never believe that a patient has had uh, this just from having COVID as a secondary disease. Like, wow, wow. Hmm. At first, at just... first, we were skeptical yeah. that you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, please go ahead. At first, we were skeptical that it might not even affect our field because you know, I mean, yeah, we come into contact with patients, but. Um, but when you work in an area as infected as the mouth, you. You, you don't really take anything that seriously anymore because you know it either happens or it doesn't because you can't protect yourself enough. But after we started to see cases like that, we decided, damn, can't take any risks. 
Let me take a second here and just remind people that you're listening to COVID calls, and it's a very special COVID calls today. I'm talking to oral surgeon Maxime Pertula, who's in Ukraine. And um, Max, I was really impressed with your description the moment ago about the informal network of doctors. And there's somebody who has pain and they're two kilometers away and people can't get somewhere on the train. And so they're treating them. And, and um, that's, that's a very, um, it's not surprising to me at all, but it's interesting to me how you're managing to work still in this time and taking care of people. But I want to ask you, you know, a bit more about the war. And do you think you're going to be, are, are you going to be treating soldiers? What's your, what is, what's your role in this going to be now as you look ahead for the next weeks? Well, uh, am I going to treat soldiers? Yes, because I've been treating them for quite a Quite a, quite a while now. Uh, in fact, uh, our clinic takes uh, volunteers, soldiers, and people like that absolutely for free. Uh, moving forward, uh, it will probably, but that's only our clinic because we have a policy like that. We uh, we think of it that way. Uh, the people that are fighting for us, they are enabling us to have a proper practice. Uh, meaning they allow us to work. Uh, moving forward, it will probably manifest to other clinics and other fields as well, because the patriotic sentiment now is extremely high and morale is extremely high in the country. Uh, uh, things will most definitely change. Um, the decrease in population uh, will probably affect all, all fields uh, and all businesses, because as of now, about 2 million people have uh, emigrated to other surrounding countries. Moving forward, it will probably be much more. And I don't know. I can't, I can't really tell anything because every day we speak to our colleagues as to what is going to happen tomorrow, what is going to happen in a week, what's going to happen in a month. And we don't know. We actually don't know. As of now, we cannot have a proper practice. Uh, because there is no way to import the necessary materials. There is no way to finance the import of necessary materials. And there is no way to make planned appointments, unfortunately. So moving forward, probably for the first, um, <clears throat> let's say, a few months at least, uh, it will most likely be just uh, acute pain, hot tooth, uh, pain and uh, general treatment uh, prevention and stuff like that. So I'm, I, I really, I'm, I'm hesitant to answer your question because I really can't mm. tell you anything. Uh, it is it is impossible to prognose anything at this point, unfortunately. And it's very sad. It's very sad. It sounds like you're living day by day right now. Uh, more like hour by hour. That right? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully this will all be over soon and we can go back to uh, treating COVID patients as planned patients. Because as of now, uh, if you're a COVID patient and uh, you need, for example, some um, medication, some specific type of medication, there is a good chance that you might not even be able to find it in pharmacies. Because all, most of the pharmacies, they uh, just uh, give everything to the front lines. There is a certain list of medications where in, w which each paramedic group provides that we need. Uh, and they, 
the pharmacies they provide it absolutely for free. So for instance, if you need some uh, aspirin, uh, which is a medication that is widely widely recommended by the medical professionals in Ukraine uh, as a form of prevention of COVID and a form of treatment, uh, you might not be able to find it at all, unfortunately. So I, I really can't tell. You see, these topics about the war, about moving forward, about uh, how we're going to do things in a week, in a month, impossible to predict. Absolutely impossible. What do you think of the way that your president is communicating with the outside world? Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Um, the current support for the president is at all time high. Uh, and that is actually a very surprising thing considering our country uh, has a tendency to not trust anything that has to do with the government uh, and mm. not trust the president at all. Uh, and ever since he was elected, he was considered, um, well, a clown, let's call it that, considering his professional background, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, however, as of now, people are in high regards of him. Uh, if it was anybody else, if it was his competitor, for example, uh, the situation could have gone much worse. Uh, we think so. Again, we are not, we can't really comment anything on that uh, politically wise because of we course. are not politicians and we have absolutely right. no clue what's happening there. But as a citizen of Ukraine, as a person who is rather patriotic, who does his duty for his country, uh, because I am a lieutenant of the medical corps uh, as well. Uh, I think he's doing a pretty good job, personally. Because, again, the support for him is extremely high, and he's keeping the morale of the people, which is the most important thing at this time, uh, extremely high. Even though most people are trying to immigrate, trying to leave the country, become refugees in European countries, um, or other countries for that matter, most people are staying, most people are fighting, most people are doing their part. Doctors are treating patients for free. Uh, normal men who have never had military experience are taking guns and going to fight. Women are performing their duties for preparation. Some women are preparing Molotov cocktails, which is fascinating how easy it is to make, actually. <laughs> uh, I've never tried. Very high. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I'm not going to comment on that. No, okay, that's fine. I understand that. No. Uh, let me just ask you one more question, and I better let you get get back to your day. And it's it's a, a sort of a question about how um, how you're keeping your spirits up, how your your endurance is. You've described some situations to me which are are about the war and about COVID, and it all sounds incredibly hard and trying. But you're smiling. And you're making some jokes. You seem to be a person who has a lot of optimism. Uh, I don't want to read too much into that. But um, how are you keeping your spirits up at this time? Well, let me put it this way. Um, it's easier for me because I have day-to-day -day experiences with people and I have to talk to people every day. And as a medical professional, you will always have moments where you're feeling good, where you're feeling bad, where you have something, some of one of a success, where you have failures. 
So this situation, uh, it's not it's not easy to cope with. I'm not going to lie to you. It is very difficult. And day to day, I might be depressed. Then I read some positive news where our troops have, uh, you know, retaking a city or a settlement, and I'm going to be like, yeah, that's good. Uh, other days, I'm going to be extremely depressed because, uh, again, if I think about predictions and whether we will return to our normal way of life, it makes me extremely sad because I know we most likely won't in the near future. Uh, we just try to do our part. You know, We treat patients here. We take our time to volunteer. We go... Uh, as a person who's not really religious, I've actually went to church recently. Uh, that helped a bit. But again, I'm not really religious, so it's a new thing for me. Let's call it that. Uh, optimism is the only way to cope with this situation. You know, I really want to go back to my city. I really want to go back to my practice. But as of now, it's not really safe there for the most part. Yeah. And what makes it even harder is uh, that I'm not originally from Kiev. I'm from another region of Ukraine. Uh, you might you might have heard the news that a atomic power plant has been captured in the southern part of Ukraine's Zaporizhia region. I'm actually from that region. And that is extremely sad because a city where my mother was born in has been captured and is being held hostage, the city, by Russian troops. And we are just hoping that people will take it back. Oh, yeah. Uh, optimism is the most important thing at this time. Uh, there is absolutely nothing a single person can do, but together we can do a lot. And uh, yeah, stuff like that. Well, let me just remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls. And today's been a special COVID calls with Dr. Maxime Pertula, who's been talking about COVID and been talking about the war and about his his practice as an oral surgeon. And uh, I'll just finish the way I started, which is um, we're with you. I wish there was some way, uh, you know, we can help I, in some small way. I hope these conversations and getting the word out it does does something. I guess you know, in, in terms of the international opinion about this. Uh, we're all pulling for you. And I wish you the absolute very best to stay healthy and safe. And thank you for the care that you're providing to people at this time. It really is important. God, it's important. Yeah. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, means a lot. Uh, having our voices heard is extremely important at this time. And having people like you take interest in it is also extremely important. So you have my utmost gratitude for it. Uh, if there is anything I can do for you in the field of information or just if you're interested in anything, you can always contact me and ask me. I'm always open to discussions, open to conversation. So, again, thank you for your time. Thank you. It means a lot. All right, Max, stay on just one second while I take it off the live broadcast and we'll chat yeah, for just sure. a second after. Mm -hmm. I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on COVID Calls.